0: uh, My wife Ann is here. She's in the the blue top over there. And then our good friends, uh, Jim and Maggie Schroeder, I bribed them to come and listen to me. So they've arrived, but it's good to see all of you folks uh, uh, this morning. Uh, Today we want to talk about uh, prayer, and prayer uh, uh, from Luke chapter 11. And you have an outline so that if you doze off during the message, you'll know where I am when you wake back up again. But um, prayer is one of those uh, interesting subjects that we think we know a lot about and then we realize we don't know a lot about it. Uh, I would be very surprised if um, there was somebody in this room who would tell me, I've never prayed ever, not even once. But I would also be equally surprised if there was someone in this room who said, I have mastered prayer. Prayer is something that I have absolutely a tight grip on. Uh, prayer is interesting because we we say it's important, but oftentimes we don't do it. Um, there are a lot of questions about prayer that we can't answer, like why pray if God knows everything anyway? Uh, you know, are we we're not going to be informing Him of something that He's unaware of? But then again. When we pray, do we really change maybe the mind of God? Well, there's a lot of things that, uh, about prayer that make it kind of uh, difficult. And so this morning, it's probably good to go to somebody who was a master of prayer. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the gospel is record about 20 different times when Jesus prayed. Uh, He would, according to Mark chapter 1, he would get up early in the morning before any people or projects got into his life, and he would spend time in prayer. He prayed when uh, he was the hottest ticket in Palestine. I mean, he was being swarmed on by thousands and thousands of people, but he always got a way to pray. He prayed in the most difficult times, like in Gethsemane. He spent all night in prayer, apparently, on occasion, like the night he prayed for um, uh, who his 12 apostles should be. So prayer was very much a a part of the way Jesus uh, did life, and my guess is that it's uh, uh, something we would at least say, you know, prayer is important to us. So if you have your Bibles, we want to listen to some things that Jesus said, and maybe just maybe, it's going to answer some questions about why it is when I pray nothing happens. So in Luke chapter 11 and verse one, we read this. And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, "Lord, teach us to pray as John, that is, John the Baptist, also taught his disciples. Now, whoever we don't know who's asking this question. It simply said he's one of his disciples, which means he might have been one of the twelve, but then again it might have been one of the literally hundreds of people who would be disciples of the Lord Jesus. But and most likely he's a Jewish man. And all Jewish men prayed. I mean, you're probably tough to find a Jewish man in, in Palestine at the time that didn't pray. So what does he mean, Lord, teach us to pray? I think the answer is simply that as people observed the Lord Jesus, they saw something that was qualitatively different about his prayer life. Jesus seemed to be effective in his prayer life, and we, not so much. So he wants to know, you know, is there a magical formula here, something that we can do that we can be more effective in our praying? And I think that, you know, deep down inside, you and I probably might ask the same kind of thing because um, if you're like me, I'm not necessarily impressed with my prayer life. Uh, We gotta upgrade this thing somehow. So Jesus then gives a response. Now, in verses um, uh, 2 through uh, uh, 4, it reads this way, and He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Thy name, Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." Now you might say, well, that sounds familiar, but not quite what I remember. And that's because this Luke 11 is a different passage than the famous Lord's Prayer found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. They're given at two different times for two different reasons. And the prayer, the pattern that he gives here is just a little bit different. But if you look at this, what we've tried to outline in the bulletin to so that we come away with something that we can get a grip on here, what Jesus is saying essentially is this: You want to know you want to be effective in your praying. Is that what you really would like? Okay, these six things have got to be true. This is what makes for effective praying. the Lord apparently never gave what we call the Lord's Prayer uh, to be rotely recited. And you go to many congregations, and every Sunday they recite the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's not a bad thing. But the point is that it wasn't given to do that, and you never find the church in the book of Acts ever doing that, because they understood this is really a pattern for prayer. These are the necessary elements if you want to be effective in praying. So <clears throat> the first one that he mentions is um, Father. And uh, and what he is saying is that, that effective praying is first and foremost de- dependent upon relationship, the relationship that we have with God. And there's two parts to that. Um, in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, and I'll just read this to you, in Romans 8.15, Paul writes, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father." He says much the same thing. Uh, Actually, he wrote Galatians 4 years before he wrote Romans, but he says this in in Galatians 4, 5, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Well, I think most of us in this church are fully aware of the fact that we come into a living relationship with the Creator God of the universe by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by simple faith in Christ who has on the cross paid for all of our sins, past, present, and even the ones we're going to commit next week, He's already paid for. So we are secure when we trust Him as Savior. And we enter into a relationship with God. He is now our Heavenly Father. But that's really not what Paul is saying. It's a part of that, but he says, and Paul's the only one who talks about this, that you and I have been adopted by God. It's kind of strange, you know, that we are birthed into his family, but we're also adopted. Well, what Paul is doing is making an emphasis in that adoption has to do with us being adult children adult children of God. Now, <clears throat> my wife and I have four kids. All of them are adults now, and we deal differently with them uh, now than when, when they were just little tykes running around the house. And that's what Paul is saying. Yes, we are birthed into God's family by faith, but God has a, a higher status, a higher privilege for us, and we have this intimate relationship as adult children. We come and we say Abba, Father, which is, as you know, kind of like the idea of Daddy. And so the first thing that must be true, Jesus says, is that we recognize our relationship. So obviously, um, God, when, the, when a person who doesn't know Christ as Savior, where the, where the relationship of a person with God is simply as Creator, but not as Savior, not as Father, God is under no obligation to that person to respond to their praying. Um, you know, when my kids were growing up and they'd be out in the neighborhood with a bunch of other kids. Um, when my kids asked me something, you know, I have an obligation to them in a sense. I'm their father. And The neighbor kid asked me something. No, nah, not so much. Um, you know, I'm not obligated to him or her. So <clears throat> the first thing that Jesus says is that Effective praying depends upon relationship, and he's going to use that in a moment in his illustration. But there's a second part to that, and that is the idea of being obedient to the Father, an obedient child, being in fellowship with Him. Um, Jesus makes a rather uh, important observation. The night before He was crucified, He spent time with His men in what we call the upper room, And in the upper room, uh, John records this lengthy discussion that Jesus had with his followers, and included in that was the matter of praying. But listen to what Jesus said about prayer. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, which sounds really cool because that's kind of like a blank check, you know. Whatever we want, God signs off. But he always links it to um, obedience, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And throughout this, where he talks about love and, or excuse me, he talks about um, prayer in other places, it is always hinged, answered prayer is hinged upon the fact that we are walking in obedience to Him. So, Jesus says, you want to pray effectively. Number one... The relationship must be authentic. And there's two parts to that. First, you actually have to be a believer. You have to be a part of God's family. But good news, good news, it's not your little tiny baby birthed into God's family. You're adult children, which has immense rights and privileges. He gets the concept from Roman society. And so we can come to him in an intimate relationship, Abba, Father, and we can come to him uh, as adult children, and be able to talk to him and and request of him and and give him praise and so on, but then again we need to check on on the, our our obedience. Now, my wife will be glad to tell you, I have uh, in my life um, avoided being perfect. Just haven't arrived there yet, and the same is true in our relationship with Christ. None of us sitting here say, man, I have achieved. I am near perfection. I'm not a 10 yet. I'm a 9.9. No, you aren't. We are all struggling, but we need to check on whether we are disobedient to known commandments. So that's what Jesus says initially. The relationship that you and I have must be authentic. The second thing he says is, hallowed be thy name. That sounds like a certain amount of religious jargon. Now, God is holy. We don't make him holy. But I want you to take a look at an Old Testament passage that I came across uh, recently in Isaiah. If you happen to have your Bible with you and you uh, wish to turn, Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 23. Isaiah 29 and verse 23 which kind of encapsulates, I think, what Jesus is saying here. But when he sees his children, he's talking about Israel now, when Israel finally comes to the place where they're going to walk obediently with the Lord. When he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel." Well, what does that mean anyway? Well, <clears throat> what Isaiah is saying and what Jesus is saying are the, basically the same thing, that when we come to pray, our attitude and our, our, our mental perspective is that God has been set apart in our thinking, in our minds, to the status that He deserves, that He is a God who is the Holy One of Israel. Um, one of the things that you and I have got to think about, and remember Jesus is saying, you want, you want to pray effectively. Is, is that right? Okay, here's what needs to be true. A lot of times we dash into the presence of God. Um, it's almost as if we're calling, you know, Little Caesars to get a pizza or something. And we, for, we really are not thinking about who we're talking to. And I would recommend we not do that, that we not rush into the presence of God, that we just begin to uh, pray suddenly. We need to think who am I talking to here? I am talking to one who is holy. I must set him apart in my thinking for who he is. Um, There is no place in our approach to God. Where we fist bump God. You know, we're going to go into His presence and say, oh God, it's good to see you. It's me. There is, a, and I realize as Americans, we always we want to be cool in our approach to God. Being cool is very important. But Jesus is saying this, effective praying depends upon our correct view of who God is. That God is committed to people who set him apart in reverence to those who fear the Lord, which is seeing God as he really is. Um, There is really, if I understand Jesus, there's really no place for a casual, flippant kind of approach to the Lord Jesus. You know, I never forget what happened when John the Apostle, remember John? He was one of three disciples who were special and he was also called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember in the book of Revelation when he saw Jesus as he really is in his glory? What happened? He fell at his feet as a dead man because he saw the Lord for who he really was. And I think that um, in recent days I've been trying to do this more when I, when I come to the Lord in prayer to think, okay, now who in the world am I talking to now? I am talking to the creator of the universe. I am talking to the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and deserves my deepest respect. And so I am to sanct- they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. So maybe that's something we need to uh, determine. Are we, when we approaching the Lord God, really seeing Him that way? Um, <clears throat> one of my uh, the psalms that I really kind of like uh, emphasizes this as well, and I think this, is, this is, has been helpful to me. In Psalm 25 and verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Uh, The fear of the Lord is the fact that we stand in an awesome reverence of God, which is, uh, in the American church today, uh, is one of the lacking elements, uh, is that there's not this awesome reverence. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He, God, will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity. His descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear the Lord. And what's interesting, when you you plow through the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, how often the concept of the awesome reverence for God comes up as being a key in God's um, dealing with his people. He has a special commitment to people who reverence him. He says so, that those who reverence him, he has a special commitment to those people. So when Jesus says... Number one, Father, a relationship that's authentic. Hallowed be thy name. As we approach God, are we doing so in the sense of of setting him apart in our thinking, in our attitude as being who he is? The third thing that Jesus mentions is, uh, get back to Luke 11 here, uh, thy kingdom come. Now, thy kingdom come. Now, what is the kingdom of God anyway? Well, we hear a lot about it. People talk about it. It's, I watch guys on TV, and they're forever talking about we are kingdom people doing kingdom work and so on, but I'm not sure that a lot of people know what, he's, what they're talking about. The word, phrase kingdom of God is found about 200 times in the Scriptures, and fundamentally all it means is the rule of God, God's rule. And the context will tell you what he's ruling over. So when Jesus says, thy kingdom come, that this is a part of effective praying, what in the world is he talking about? Well, some would say, well, he's talking about that we need to pray that uh, the future kingdom of God will come in. Well, that could be a part of it, yeah. Uh, I think that that's going to happen whether or not we We pray about it. I think God will do what He's going to do. I don't think that's what He's saying. I think rather what Jesus is saying is that um, uh, there must be in our lives for effective praying that we desire God's will, God's rulership in our lives. In other words, when we pray effectively, a part of the ingredient of that is that that God is, in fact, the Lord of our lives. Um, Let me read something to you that Jesus said, and you can look at this. It's only a few pages away in Luke 17. Now, in in the New Testament, there's a lot of relationships that you and I have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews says he's our friend. He's our older brother. um, He's our savior. He's our shepherd. All kinds of designations. But one of those designations, which we are less inclined towards, I suspect, is the master-slave relationship. So listen to what Jesus says in, in Luke, this is Luke 17, verse 7. But which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, here's some guy, he, he's a, you bought him, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's your slave, and he's been working all day out in the field, and he comes in, and what does the master say to that person? Oh, man, you put in a tough day, haven't you? Let me get you something to eat. Lemonade would be okay today. How about an Arnold Palmer? Will that work for you? No, that's not what the master says. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? Properly change, will you? Get some clean clothes on and serve me until I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Say, no, comes in from the field, change your clothes, make dinner for me. This is not very American here at all. I have my rights. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded him, does he? And in that culture and in that time, the answer is absolutely not. So you too. Now, who's the you there? Well, it's the apostles who have been asking him the questions. And so to the apostles, he says, So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. what's What's the point? Well, the point that Jesus is making is that no matter what a slave does, he never puts the master in obligation to him. So if we serve Jesus Christ all of our lives, He is not required, He is not under obligation to keep us from getting cancer, from having a traffic accident by which we're paralyzed for life, or that we should be financially solvent all of our days. We never put Him under obligation. Now, again, that's only part of our relationship with the Lord, but it's an important part, and that's what Jesus is referencing when he talks about your kingdom come, that is, your rulership in my life. So here's the question for you. Is he, in fact, Lord of your life? In the word Father, the, the idea of him being Savior is established. But this is a different matter because just because a person has come to faith in Christ does not at all mean that Christ is now one who is ruling in life. And that's a growing thing. I mean, there's, there's uh, things in your life and in my life right now where oh, I should speak for me, but I would be pretty sure that there are areas in my life that I may not be aware of that Jesus is not really the Lord because I haven't given Him or um, uh, requested Him to be Lord of our lives. I came across a very interesting thing um, some years ago. And I want you to think about this and apply it to yourself as I've tried to apply it to myself. When I was working on on my book, Believer's Payday, which has to do with the judgment seat of Christ, I was investigating a passage in Romans chapter 14. And in Romans 14, uh, Paul is talking about relationships between believers. Some ate meat that had been offered to idols, some did not. As a result... Some were looking down on friends, or some of the brothers. Some were condemning others and so on. So Paul says this, Romans 14:10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? You just see within the congregation there, there's some attitude issues. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Talking to believers, isn't he? then he says this, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God, so then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. You know, whenever I heard that phrase, every knee shall bow to Christ, I'm always thinking of the unsaved, you know? Those people out there who are are adamant that Jesus is not going to tell them what to do and they really want nothing to do with Jesus. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Christian knees that don't bow. See, there's a very real possibility that a person can be a a born-again person, and Jesus is simply not the one who directs their lives. He is not Lord of their lives as a general rule, much less in specific areas. He's not Lord of their marriage, of their finances, or whatever uh, else it might be. And that's what Jesus is talking about. When he says, Thy kingdom come, he says... You and I need to be being ruled by God, being ruled by Him. And when we are in that position, then God is open to answering prayer. So one of the things we have to ask ourselves if we are interested in effective praying is, is Jesus in fact Lord of my life? If He's not, that's a game changer when it comes to prayer. Because we really don't want Jesus' rulership in our lives. We really don't want his will done. Isn't it true of some of our praying? I know it's of mine. My guess is, you know, I, I make a request to the Lord. What I'm really asking, I want his rubber stamp on it. Good idea, huh, Lord? Stamp this one and let's move on. Well, the reality is that that may not be at all But the Lord wants to be a tad bit smarter than you or me, um, what he wants. So Jesus says... Um, Father, um, back to Luke 11, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And then the fourth element is give us each day our daily bread or our um, bread of need. The idea is that we are focused upon need, but a part of that is... Uh, that we realize that we are dependent upon God for answers. And this is tough for us as Americans because we are very affluent. Now, usually we don't think of ourselves that way because Bill Gates has more money than I do. But do you know what rich is according to the New Testament? Paul defines it in 1 Timothy. He says, do you have clothing? You got a roof over your head? You have food? Okay. Okay. If you have anything more than that, then you are rich. Now, most of us fit, therefore, into the wealthy category, and one of the problems with with wealth of any level or any degree is that it, it breeds within us an independence from God. I mean, look, it's tough to pray, give us this day our daily bread, when you own the bakery, right? When you're well off, We don't sense our need. And was this not the problem with the less than uh, famous church of uh, Laodicea in the book of Revelation? Listen to what those folks said as they evaluated themselves. They said uh, in Revelation 3.17 because you say I am rich and have have, um, become wealthy and have need of nothing and they were a very affluent church. But they say, I'm wealthy. I don't really need anything. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Uh, Jesus' evaluation is just a tad bit different than theirs. And, and, but when we have um, no great um, physical needs, because of an affluence, uh, then sometimes we don't recognize our dependence upon the Lord and the but Jesus is not just talking about food or um, buying a car or something he's talking about the real needs that we have and you and I have some very real needs which I think we only really find uh, in the scriptures we begin and one of the values of coming to church and Bible studies is that we begin to see more and more of what the Scriptures say uh, are our needs and what we, what we need from Him. So <clears throat> give us this day our daily bread is really an acknowledgment of our, of our dependence. And you know it's not greeds, it's needs, the, not the things we want, but it is the things that we um, actually need and God will provide those Uh, when we come to Him. So it's an invitation to come. And then the fifth one is, uh, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Remember the story that Jesus told, just a powerful story back in, 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 recorded in Matthew chapter 18. Remember the story of the guy, the servant, who his master had lent him, an incredible amount of money. We don't know why in the world the master would ever give this, lend this servant all this money, but it's difficult to take monetary system back there and translate it into dollars and dollars buying power, but basically the story is this. The master lent this guy a million dollars, and it's time to repay, and he can't repay. He can't even come close. And so he comes to the master and he says, Master, give me some time and I'll be able to repay you. Well, everybody except the servant apparently knew. He can give him 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, two years. The guy is not coming up with a million dollars. he would be like you. Think he can come up with a million dollars in 30 days? I doubt it. And so what did the master do? He did put on a, didn't put him on a payment plan. He looked at the poor slob and he says to him, Ah, I'm never getting my money from this guy. Tell you what, I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive your debt. How cool is that? A million dollar debt has just been removed. I tried that with my banker several times with my mortgage in years past. Never worked. Never worked. He never forgave him. But can you imagine the relief that would come when you'd just been a million dollars? Well, as Jesus tells the story. This guy at least had lent $18 to a friend of his, a fellow servant. And at least we know where 18 of the million went. He lent it to another guy. So he comes up to the guy and he says to him, Hey, buddy, you owe me $18. Was it a real debt? Oh, yeah, it was a real debt. It was $18. And the guy said, You know what? You pay. He says, I can't pay. Give me some time. I mean... Even I and you can come up with $18, given 30 days maybe. But the guy says, ah, into debtor's prison with you. And everybody is shocked. And this is what Jesus says in the words of the master who had forgiven the million dollars. Summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? What is wrong with you? Well, that's the point Jesus is making. One of the surest ways to have no answered prayer is to hold grudges against somebody else. Because you see, you've been granted a million dollar debt has been released. You've been freed from it all oh, your debts. Oh yeah, they, you know, are $18 worth. Well, okay. Some of them may be a $118 worth. But the point is that it's not doesn't compare with what we have been forgiven. So Jesus says this. You don't. And he says this in Matthew 6 also in the big Sermon on, in, in the Lord's Prayer. He says this, um, if you don't forgive other people, you're not going to be forgiven, and your prayers aren't going to be answered. So I guess my question for myself and for you is, are you holding grudges? If you are, that's a sure way to see no answered prayer in your life, even if you are, you know, a believer. So <clears throat> you say, well, what about 1 John nine? okay? What is 1 John w- Wonderful verse, isn't it? If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just. God's holy. There's an objective basis for Him forgiving our sins, and that's the cross. He forgives our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, that is more than cool. How many times did you sin yesterday? You said, well, I don't know. Probably had a good day, maybe it's 10. You know, <laughs> That was a good day. Okay, so let's say you came to the last night, the end of your day, and you're saying, Lord, I, I need to confess some things to you. And you've sinned ten times, okay? And you remember sins 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9, but you've forgotten completely about 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10. What about that? Well, what 1 John 1, 9 is saying, if we come clean with God about 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9, the ones we can remember then he is going to cleanse us from all ten of them because our hearts are right. If we confess, the word confess is a Greek word, homo logeo. We get the word homo meaning same. We have homosexual and all that. It is, is the word that means same. Logeo means to speak. We are, And what John is saying, the word confess means we are saying the same thing about our sin that God says about it, and sometimes we don't do that. So I may um, have gotten terribly angry yesterday with my wife, and so I'm yelling and screaming and doing all kinds of of saying things, and (sighs) later on I come to the Lord and I said, Lord, I shouldn't have yelled at her, but Lord, if You were listening, you saw what she said. You heard what she said and did. That's not confession. I'm not saying the same thing about my sin that God is saying about it. And that's required. That's what Jesus is saying is required. So, you have grudges. You've got people in your life. Um, you just won't forgive them. Well, uh, sometimes that's not easy, but you need to go to what Jesus said in Matthew 18. And you realize that when you focus on how much you've been forgiven, it really becomes quite easy to forgive others. It's when you don't really appreciate what you've been forgiven of that you have a tough time forgiving others. The final thing, the sixth thing that Jesus said is found in the statement, and lead us not into temptation, which we wonder why in the world would Jesus include that one because uh, the Bible says, James in particular, God does not tempt us. (laughs) What are we supposed to be praying about here? Well, what he's actually saying is that um, we are asking the Lord to keep us from situations where we likely will fail. We have a very good illustration of this, in, again, in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 22 and uh, in verse 40. This is the uh, time when Jesus goes into Gethsemane. And the night before his crucifixion. And uh, he, he, he's burdened, but he takes his, his men with him. And in Luke twenty two thirty nine, 39, he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus recognized that they were very vulnerable at that moment. And so you guys need to be praying. This is a a very uh, tense time. A lot of stuff's going to happen tonight. Well, what did the apostles do? They slept. Did they do well that night? Absolutely not. Um, and the next few days were characterized by extreme failure on the part of these men who had walked with Christ. Why? Because Jesus said, Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Ask for divine assistance in all of this. So here's the thing I don't know you, you don't know me, but this I do know about you is that you've got areas in your life where you are particularly vulnerable, uh, you have weaknesses. And the enemy who has probed you time and time again knows what those are. And you need to pray that God will keep you from those times, those situations, those settings, those people maybe where um, you have a better than 50-50 chance of really blowing it. And so Jesus says you need to be praying that way. So, okay, the question is, Lord, we want to pray like you pray. We want to be effective. So Jesus says, here are the six elements that are a part of effective praying. Now, unlike the famous Lord's Prayer, Jesus now goes on, and we're going to walk through this uh, real quickly now. Um, and he gives a shuaha parable in, in chapter 11 and verse 5. And you'll see some of the elements now coming out uh, from his uh, basic list of, of uh of uh, ingredients necessary for effective praying. He said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Don't bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus observes, I tell you, even though He will not get uh, get up and give him anything because He is His friend, yet because of His persistence, He will get up and give him as much as He needs. Now notice that Uh, What Jesus says is that request is based upon relationship. This is not some guy he doesn't know. He's going to the house of a friend. I need some bread. A guy has shown up at midnight, which was unusual. I mean, you wouldn't have travelers, as a general rule, going at midnight. And so he asks him for biscuits, basically, enough to tide the guy over. Hospitality was sacred in the Middle East, and, and he just didn't take care of somebody. Well, we might wonder what's wrong with the guy that they won't give him, th- you know, just you know, go to the refrigerator, grab some stuff out, walk down the hallway, open the front door, and hand him the three biscuits. But you've got to understand, this is a different culture, different setting. Um, when they went to bed at night, which was usually shortly after whenever sunset was, um, most people had very small homes, one room, and when you rolled out the mats for sleeping, I mean, everybody has their designated. And if you have eight kids or something, you know, this is going to be tough to move around. And I thought about this because it's just not like our setting. But it, I do remember something. When we, we used to, years ago, with our four kids, we had a little pop-up camper. I mean, this was really basic stuff, not the RV stuff that you see today. No, we didn't have a shower in it. we didn't have a, 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 a bathroom in it. We, we, we didn't even have a refrigerator in it. Um, it was just, you know, pop, the ends pop out, you know. And so nighttime comes, what happens? Well, we climb into our place. We had to fold the table down, you know, and it was on top of where we kept the food. I mean, if somebody came to the door of our camper and said, hey, could you give me a loaf of bread and some peanut butter? I got to get three kids up to do this. And so I got thinking that's more like it. You know, when we're jammed into a place. And so, but the guy keeps knocking. So finally says, okay, everybody's awake. Anyhow, I'll go get you your stuff. And so Jesus says, first of all, relation um, request is built upon relationship. We've seen that in the word father. But now he includes a new element in that of persistence. you got to keep on keeping on. In fact, persistence is apparently important in our praying in Luke 18 verse 1 now he was telling them a parable to show that all times that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart why would Jesus say that because the answer is very simple you and I give up real quick I mean how many times have you prayed about something and after two or three days I mean man nothing's happened we kind of move on in life to other things now Unless usually it's a very critical issue, then we may keep on keeping on. But Jesus says you've got to be persistent in praying, and so He gives these series of commands. Verse 9, I say to you, ask shall be given you, seek you shall find, knock it shall be open to you. And these are present tense, which means keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And if you do that, Jesus says, everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and he who knocks it shall be opened. So that's God's promise. You keep on keeping on. Um, probably get an answer to prayer. The question, though, is why? And, and think about your own prayer life and answers to prayer. It is a rare thing for most of us to look back over and, and see God answer prayer immediately. Now sometimes he has answered a prayer and the answer is underway before you ever actually pray about it because something occurs on Sunday but it took Thursday onward to get this thing to take place. But why is it? And, and this is a this is an important point. Why is it that we have to be persistent in our praying? The answer I think is simply this. Is that we are... We don't get immediate answers because our praying just does not line up with the ingredients that Jesus says is necessary. And what God is asking us to do is to go back to the drawing board and take a look at our lives. Is he really Lord of my life? Is is there grudges that I'm holding against a family member, a friend, a church member, or whatever? Um, And to go through that list of things, and best we can, is there some glaring issue here where I'm simply out of step with what the Lord says? So we are to, we are to go back and to look at the things that uh, Jesus has said are essential. Now, he ends it with this, verse 11. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? The implied answer is, of course not. Or, if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? We in Arizona can appreciate that particular imagery. If you, then, being evil, essentially we are self-centered people, if you, being evil, know how to good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift of all, to those who ask him? So <clears throat> two things Jesus is pointing out. Number one, God is wise. He, um, uh, when we ask for something that is not what's best for us, we probably aren't going to get it. I mean, how many you know, people like Susie, Susie is 20 years old, and she just adores Joey. I want to marry Joey. Lord, I want to marry Joey. Doesn't happen. And, of course, you know, 10 years later, she realized Joey's a jerk. (laughs) God knew that long ago. She didn't, though. And so God did not answer her prayer because he is a wise God. He doesn't give us scorpions when we ask for, the good, for, you know, for things that are good. So anyway, but the other thing is this. He is not only good, He is generous. God loves to give good gifts to you and I. Because the question would arise is why does God take His time in answering prayer, or sometimes not answer prayer? And it's not because He's not good or generous. That's not the point, Jesus says. There are other issues in play here. So, what are we supposed to do with this? If we're going to wrap up now, for those of you who are wondering, um, so when we walk out of this place today, uh, how might we upgrade our prayer life next week so that uh, we're just a little, look a little bit more like the Lord Jesus in our in our praying? Number one, and this is the main point of Jesus, effective praying always follows the pattern that he has set forth, okay? Effective praying follows the pattern given by the Lord Jesus. If our praying is not effective, nothing really happens, then something or several things are probably not in place. Effective praying follows the pattern given by Christ. Secondly, persistence in prayer is often required. And the reason why is not because God is not good or not generous, but it is required because we need to align our lives with the pattern. And finally, third point we can uh, walk away with is that God is generous. That's his character. He loves to give good gifts to his children So, I want to read Hebrews 4 14 to 16, and then we're done. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let's hang in there. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to live in a sinful culture. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is the invitation. And so, um, as we pray, which is a habit hopefully you have, that we'll think about what what Jesus said about effective praying. Let's conclude by just asking his favor. Lord, we thank you that you have done so much for us and that uh, you invite us to come and to share life with you casting our cares upon you, making requests, giving you praise. And I do pray, Father, that um, our prayer lives as we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus might be more effective in this church even, that there would be increasing evidence of answers to prayer as we become more like the Savior himself in the way that we pray. And we ask this in his name. Amen.